I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week is dedicated to better understanding the strange art of sound design and sound editing. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Nicola Medic, who recently worked on MK3D guest Kathy Brady's brilliant film Wildfire, and Guy Hake, who teaches sound design at the National Film and Television School. But first, let's hear from someone who earned Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel nominations for her work on An Education, Marley and Gravity, and who won an Oscar for the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm Nina Hartstone, and I am a supervising sound editor. I work out of the UK, uh, so I basically generally work on feature films, overseeing the sound editorial process and then through the mix. One of the things that I've been discovering whilst talking to sound designers is, firstly, that most people don't have a clue what sound designers do. And secondly, it's often quite hard to describe in words. It's kind of easier to describe in sound. Now, you have an Oscar for sound design for Bohemian Rhapsody. So let's begin there. At the risk of asking you to blow your own trumpet, why was the sound design of Bohemian Rhapsody so, you know, what was it about it that made that an Oscar-winning sound design? Well, from it's funny because sound design is one of those terms that means different things in different countries, actually. So over here, sound design very specifically means the sort of the sound effects that are added to the film, the whoosh, the bangs, those kinds of things. Whereas I think in, in a lot of European countries, sound design is used as a terminology for basically all the sound editorial. Um, so... On Bohemian Rhapsody, it was a really complex job in terms of sound, uh, all the way through, in fact, sound and music from the beginning to the get to the very end. And it's because we were using uh, three different voices for our lead character. And I'm not sure that that has been done before. I mean, that's one of the reasons. It's basically, uh, we had Rami Malek playing, um, playing Freddie Mercury, and we had Rami giving spoken performance, and then we were always, of course, wanted to use Freddie Mercury's iconic voice for the singing. Um, and then we also had a few sequences where we we didn't have existing tracks recorded by Freddie Mercury because it's maybe some ad-libbing he's doing with the family, for example, where he's at a family meal and he just pops on the piano and tinkers along. Those kind of things. We actually had a voice alike, a Freddie Mercury voice alike. Freddie's voice is so distinguishable. We needed someone who sounded really like Freddie. So we used him to record um, those little sections as well. So 
that we knew from the get-go was going to be a massive challenge to actually make it believable. I mean, it's it's a story with a lot of heart and it's a it's you know, it's a biopic, so you're it's not a fantastical story. It's kind of, you know, it's it's all set in reality and you're following the journey of the band and you really need to be anchored to the performances that are happening there. So any moment where you get bumped out of believing what you're seeing, whether it's singing or whether it's speaking, you know, it really was so crucial to making uh, the film work. So that was one of the huge challenges. I mean, the other one, uh, the sort of big challenge there was recreating Live Aid, I'd say. It's it's sort of one of those things where anyone can go on YouTube and watch Live Aid and and listen to the set, but we really wanted to make it um, an immersive and kind of visceral experience. So we needed the sound of all those people singing along to Queen songs, which is not something you can get from a library. Um, So it's creating the ambience there. We wanted you to feel if you're in the back of the stadium, like you're in the back of that concert, surrounded by the people and the sound of the PA is how it sounds when you're at the back. But then when you're at the front, it's how it sounds at the front. When you're on stage, it's how it would sound from that from that perspective so that you literally were sort of riding the camera around through that sequence to make it really exciting. So I think it's it's mainly those kind of areas of trying to create um, a film using existing tracks that we had. It's always difficult, you know, trying to gel sound that wasn't recorded on the day onto uh, onto picture. And it, it's the challenges that we we had on that particular film, I think, that made it made it tricky and, and obviously made it quite successful in the award season for sound as well. Of the first point that you raised, I have to say that was done brilliantly because I didn't know there was three voices. I thought there was Rami and then the Freddie Mercury. It never occurred to me that there was a third interim voice of somebody else singing. So those those things were seamless. And that brings me to a point that everyone's raised is that the best sound design is not sound design that the audience comes out of the film and says, that was great sound design. It's when they don't even notice that it's happening. Is that true? Yeah. That it's very much so. I mean, particularly from sort of my specialism comes up through dialogue. John Warhurst, who I co-supervise with, he's sort of music and, and, and sound supervisor. But I come up through through dialogue editing, which is basically recording the the sound. It's, it's dealing with the sound that's captured on set yeah. and trying to make that believable and then re-recording things in post-production for the voice or, or other elements for the crowds, those kinds of things, and um, making it all feel believable. Arguably, if I've done my job well enough, you watch the film and everything that you hear, you believe actually happened on the day that it was filmed. And that that's the thing I think you need to, you know, you, we do an awful lot of work to make ourselves invisible. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> 
because that's what what works for the film you know we're trying to make the sound feel organic we're trying to make it feel very linked to the picture we want the viewer to dive into the entire story and never feel like anything we've done is added on afterwards where of course so much of what we do is so what's the secret to doing that so for example i'm sitting here in a soundproof booth if i open the door even if people can't mm. see me, they'll know that I've opened the door because the sound will change. If I go down the corridor to another booth, it'll sound completely different. I know that, uh, you know, huge amounts of dialogue is looped. Um, what's the secret to making that stuff sound like it is of a piece and that it is all effectively what the audience believes is on set production sound? I think, you know, the, the main starting point for any sound, whether it's dialogue or whether it's uh, sound design for anything, even if it's something fantastical, actually, is uh, to have the right sound in the first place, which very often means going out and recording it. That's for the sort of sound design side of things. And for the ADR side of things, when you're recording or looping in post-production, when you're re-recording actors' performances and you're trying to gel it back onto the, the performance that was done on set, it's about getting... Or the elements that were there on set. It's allowing the actor to get back into that zone, to move in the same way, to um, to basically be as um, as authentic as they were on the day. It's about the authenticity of of capturing the tiniest details, of capturing the breaths and the lip smacks um, for the sound design, the other elements of it. Like, for example, the crowd sequences on Bohemian Rhapsody, we, we tried to shoot as much as we could exterior for Live right. Aid because the, the acoustic is real. Um, with, we worldized the music, so we played the entire set through, we were very fortunate, actually, we played it through Queen's PA when they were playing at the O2 with Adam yeah. Lambert and uh, recorded it in the O2 so that we had sort of real um, real life reverberation, how it sounds when it comes out the out of the PA. I think the, the key is to always try and find an organic real sound and then work with that. It's I'm, I'm very much, I try and use my ears more than the technology and try and sort of decide how I think I would like something to sound and then figure out how we get there. It's, it's a sort of reverse process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're kind of reverse engineering it. You imagine it first, and then you work back from how you how you would then record that. Okay. So for example, and forgive this for being an idiot entry level question. Okay. Nowadays, um, if I'm doing like something in the news channel, for example, they'll give me a clip mic and a little radio pack, mm -hmm. and uh, you know I can walk around and and it sounds like it's close mic. Most of the time before that, uh, I did everything on booms, you know, people standing around with booms. How much has technology changed the way that you can capture the sound in the first place? And how much has that changed the palette? I mean, it has, it has changed massively, and of course, it's improving all the time, not just the, the technology that's there with the microphones and how sound is captured on set, but also how we can then edit and improve and clean up the sound in post-production. But I think there's a... Um, we're never trying to clean it too much. There's so much within the sound recordings that you get on set that are, it's sort of, it's the bits in between. It's the air around it. It's the breath leading to and from. You don't want anything to be too clean. That's suddenly when it starts feeling sterile and it starts moving away from the picture and they don't feel linked together anymore. It's, it's about keeping everything that you've recorded on the day. And I think that the technology um, with the microphones has improved massively, but still they 
they are very often need to be hidden within costume. We get a lot of problems um, depending on where they're seated within the costume. If you hear their clothes rustle, those kind of things. The other things that can happen these days, of course, is the booms can be, you know, you can put a green screen on the pole. They can be taken out of visual effects so you can get your boom in nice and tight. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's in shot, so it can be removed. There's all manner of uh, ways and means that are improving things moving along. We have uh, plug-in software that we can use to clean things, not in a very editorial way. So rather than sort of taking a whole frequency out all the way through, we can literally find the frequencies that are um, that have a particular noise that we don't like and take, try and take the level down on those in little areas. And all those sorts of detailed uh, work with the cleaning really helps to make it not feel clean and, and maintain everything that you want to keep there without not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, basically, just doing it all in a very detailed fashion. Um, you, you talk about all of this as if it's completely second nature to you. Um, how, I mean, how much did growing up in a household in which you were kind of connected to the film world, how much did that, how much did it begin then? I think I was always very aware of um, the work that goes on behind the camera. I think as a kid, probably if you watch films, you don't particularly think about how they're made. But with my father, Graham Hartstone, being a re-recording mixer and growing up in a, in a household where someone worked at Pinewood, it was, you know, we we did go in and see my dad and we, we saw film sets on the back lot. And was it fabulously exciting? It was. I mean, I don't know how much you realise it when you're a kid, but they had... I remember the Superman set out on the back lot and the, and the cable car from one of the Bond films was just sort of abandoned in the gardens for a while and we used to just clamber around on it. It's all those all those kinds of things. But as a child, I just remember my, my dad being at work a lot <laughs> and working really hard and doing really long hours and me going, when's he coming home? <laughs> so, so you, I mean, look, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, UFO on television and in UFO, you know, the, the base is below Harlington Straker Studios. And I didn't know which was more exciting, the base or the Harlington Straker Film Studios. And I remember the first time I went on Pinewood, I must have been in my 30s. And it was like, I remember going past the sign. I remember going through the gates. I remember thinking this is like the keys to the castle, you know. Yeah. But it, for you, it was just, yeah. No, I mean, it was, it, don't get me wrong, it was totally, it was exciting. Because he was working on things like the Bond films and stuff. I mean, that yeah. was, you know, when you get to a certain age, we'd get to go along to the cast and crew or whatever and watch these films before they came out. And that was really, really exciting. I think um, the process, when I'd go in and sit with him in the in the mix stage, he would, it, it, sound, it felt quite boring after a bit because it's so detailed, the work, they're going backwards and forwards, playing the sound backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards in a darkened room. And I was just like, I don't think I want to do anything like this when I grow up. What do you think of as the films that you look at as a sound designer and or a sound editor and go, okay, that's got great sound. What are the ones that stand out for you? I mean, there's, obviously, there's, there's a load of films. I really loved Arrival a few years ago. I thought mm. the sound on that was fantastic. There's so many... Um, I'm just trying to think of other, other films. I really, really loved the sound on that I haven't worked on <laughs> because obviously you get so into it when you're of working course. on it. You do really... You really love um, what you're listening to. Um, yeah, no, Arrival is fantastic. I think Quentin Tarantino's films all sound really interesting, actually. You know, I, I do like the way he plays with sound. He tends to feature everything very upfront. 
The dialogue's very upfront. The Foley has a massive place within his soundtrack. So when you hear someone putting a key in a lock, if it's something that sort of tells you about the character or tells you about the story, he's not shy about putting that sound right up there at a level that would be louder than you would expect it to be in real life. Yeah. And, and I like it. I think it, you know, it gives it a lot of definition. It's exciting to listen to. You know, I, I just I think they're um I always enjoy the sound soundtracks on Quentin's films, let's say. I wonder, one of my favourite films is Singing in the Rain. And I'm sure that, you know, if you actually know something about the way that films are made, Singing in the Rain, you know, there's a certain amount of baloney involved in it. But I love the Singing in the Rain sequence with the microphone in the bush and the microphone in the thing, and I can't make love to a bush and all that. And I still think that that's kind of what the beginning of sound must have felt like. Literally hiding microphones in bushes and catching one word in three. How close to the truth do you think that is? Well, I, I love singing in the rain as well. It's one of my favourite musicals. <laughs> it's so brilliant, and I, I again, it, you know, you just so dive into that story. But the way that is told with the microphone like that, I, I do think that's actually almost the best ex- explanation there is for the work that we do. <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> it's so it makes it so clear and so accessible to everyone. I think um, it's you know it, it's. It can't, it is it, it's sound is one of those things I think everyone focuses on picture the the interest in a in a film is very much on the picture and particularly these days on visual effects and I think sound is is often not um, appreciated for what it brings to the story and I know there's that famous quote of George Lucas saying that you know sound is fifty percent or more than fifty percent of the of the viewing experience yeah. and for us what we're always trying to do is serve the story. You know, we we can put all sorts of sounds in wherever we like. We can create things as real as we want or as unreal. But at the end of the day, in every scene, what you're trying to do is draw people in, and you want your sounds to be supporting that rather than pushing it away. That you know, that's basically what we're looking at. When you go to the cinema, do you choose cinemas that you know have good sound setups, and are you very conscious of noise in cinemas? I am conscious. I mean, cinemas very often play um, play our sound too quiet. We mix at, at, at level at seven, and we go to the cinema, and generally they turn it down. And I understand why because it is quite, you know, it's quite loud, particularly for young ears. Um, we did go and see Bohemian Rhapsody in a multiplex, and I did go and ask them what level they were playing it at because I felt it was too quiet. So hang on, um, so hang on. So you, so you went to a multiplex, right? Mm-hmm. And then you came out of the screening, and you went, "Excuse me, I did the sound on this film. What level are you playing it at?" I did ask, yes. And? And it was quieter. Yeah, they, they knocked it down a couple of notches, <laughs> as you do. The thing in the multiplex as well, because they're all very close to each other, the screening room, so, that, you know, there's, there's bleed. Yeah, yeah. you can hear the sub, but, you know, if you've got an action film going next to you and you're watching a very yeah. quiet film in your screen. Um, I, it, was, uh, it was one of those ones I was like, it's too quiet. I've taken my children. I want them to hear it properly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Stanley Kubrick famously used to drop in on cinemas that were playing his movies and he'd, and he'd go up to the projection box and he'd knock on the door and the projectionist would open the door and he'd go, I am Stanley Kubrick and, and, and this isn't bright enough. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And in fact, Ken Russell once apparently did the same thing, went up to because something was, it wasn't, in the, the, the ratio wasn't correct. And Ken being Ken tripped and fell over onto the projector and knocked the film off, the, you know, just caused havoc. And, you know, we're going, but I am Ken Russell. I am Ken Russell. But I just love the idea 
of somebody who actually did the sound on that movie going and having a word with with the multiplex. I I don't want to be that person who goes in and complains, but I think it's you know it's for it's for their own learning as well. I think it's important for them to think about these things. We always know that as soon as we let the film out, we listen to it in the perfect environment. Of course, we mix it in a in a studio that's completely lined up at the correct level and we hear it how it's meant to be heard and we know that once we let it out in the world all bets are off you know <laughs> but the the key is to try and make sure that you the track that you end up with does play in different environments and and can you know can survive being turned down a bit or coming out with some stereo speakers when you make your near field it sounds to me like the equivalent of in a, in a former life i was in you know groups that recorded um you know music and singles and that kind of stuff and i remember being in a fairly big studio and recording something and then the, you know they had the big speakers and then these these little tiny little square ones and the, and the sound he kept putting onto the square ones and i kept going why are you using the and he said because that's what it'll sound like on the radio he said and, and if it doesn't sound any good on that then it isn't any good and i mean it got minimal airplay anyway but it was like the whole point was you have you have to take into account what it will sound like in the worst possible circumstance. Uh, totally. And, and also how you, the vast majority of your audience are going to watch it. You know, the, especially these days, I think with um, there's, there's been such a, with COVID and things, you know, people were preparing things to, to screen in the cinema that then ended up streaming. You know, you, you have, you want to kind of think about where's the bulk of my audience, where are they going to watch this? But we are, we're very, we, we'll do it at the, the highest level we can. So say we'll do an Atmos mix. We'll then, we listen to every single um, incarnation of that, the 7-1, the 5-1, the stereo, near-field mix, and we'll adjust accordingly to make sure that we're being faithful um, in each of those formats to, to the final mix as it was supposed to sound. Because it's now possible to have a very... Um complex sound system in your home. I mean, I was talking to Dave Norris, who's, you know, head projectionist at Universal, and he's got a fantastic sound system in his front room. <laughs> wow. And I've got a very decent, you know, Sonos speakers. And and sometimes I think I might hear the film better at home than in a cinema. It's, you know, it's quite likely, depending on the cinema, there's, you can't be everywhere and check the way that films are played or in, in every cinema in the country or all over the world. I mean, it, it, it kind of... That's the thing. You let it go, and you have to. You have to hope that it, it's playing right. But I think it, it is getting better. I think that there are some standards. People are sort of checking on these things. When we mix a film, we'll always, some way through our mix, we'll take a, a portion of it, all the whole film, out to a multiplex to one of the big ones in Leicester Square, and we'll have a listen to our film, and make then to double check how it translates. We always want to listen to it how it's finally going to be listened to. Yeah. Um, and I think people are getting, as you say, more savvy at home and and getting more and more advanced um, setups. You know, it kind of went one way from when we had our big TVs and they had at least some space for some decent speakers. Everything went flat screen and then the speakers were really tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it is, you know, and, but now you've got sound bars. It's a lot simpler than having all those individual speakers wind, wired up in your living room. You know, you can, you can get pretty decent sound that way. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. <sighs> Can I buy you ladies a drink each? Yeah. You want something stronger? No. Sure? Yeah. Hi, my name is Nikola Medic. I am supervising sound editor, sound designer, and re-recording mixer. And currently I'm working for Netflix as a sound technologist um, out of Amsterdam, Netherlands. Hey, hold on. That's all muscle love. Here, muscle man. See if you can do this. Watch. So sound design is a way... Uh, a different way to tell um, a particular story through uh, means of audio. Put it out or get out. Sure, they've done far worse and you still serve them. <laughs> yes, far worse. You go on now, girls. So if, for example, I watched Wildfire recently and I was you know, very impressed by it, and you, I know that you did a lot of work on Wildfire, at what point would you become involved in a movie? When it's shooting or tell us how you, you, know, how you start on a film like that? Well, in ideal case scenario, you would get uh, involved as early as possible. And in a particular case of Wildfire, I got involved in the early stages of script. So I read a version of script. I remember reading it and crying because it was a beautiful script, very strong, um, already having a lot of ideas about sound and the approach that we want to take, uh, raising a lot of questions in my mind regarding um, how does it sound to go through a psychosis? Um, how does trauma uh, express itself through sound um, that kind of then pushed me in, in, in a direction of a research um, to read as much as I can um, discovering noise sensitivity as one of the symptoms, early symptoms I would say of of psychosis and, and then thinking how this can become a, a let's say a concept uh, to develop uh, in the language of the sound of the film. So give me an example of that. So during the course of the movie, we have two central characters, and one of the things that it deals with is, as you say, trauma. And you're talking about sound sensitivity being an early symptom of something that we're seeing on screen. So how would you begin to introduce that into the film? In the, in the most straightforward terms, how would that start to develop on the sound? I mean, the the readings that I did describe that the people who do suffer from noise sensitivity, um, often the the sounds that happen around them, they can't, usually normal, like people who are not going through this uh, psychological state, we are capable of uh, um, forgetting about these sounds, ignoring them and focusing on something. The people who are going through psychosis can't often, and small particular sounds become very kind of repetitive and very uh, 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 negative, having a negative impact on the state of the mind. So in, in, in the film, we kind of explore that in, in quite few 
moments. For example, uh, when one of the sisters who work in uh, this massive, huge Amazon-like uh, uh, warehouse starts, um, you know, there is a lot of sound around her. Some moments she loses the control, let's say, and, and these sounds become very intrusive, kind of uh, suffocating her from all the sides because her mental state is slowly de degrading. Um, so, for example, this is one of the early on in the film also when we are with the other sister when she's in the, this big uh, um, ship, you know, the, in the hull of the ship, all these creaks and metal noises create this illusion as well of her kind of uh, being uh, some kind of suffocated and, and, and claustro claustrophobic feel to a certain extent. And where are those sounds generated from? Are they recorded on set or are they artificially produced? How do you go about generating the sounds in the first place? Uh, well, I mean, some of those uh, recordings are from the set. Most of are not. Most of our are actually extra recordings that we did. Uh, some of the recordings, for example, for this particular ship, I, I recorded and a colleague of mine recorded uh, on a shipyard uh, of kind of huge boat slowly kind of moving in water and hulls of the ship kind of cre creating this that and these sounds then we use there's a like kind of base and then we kind of process them in a way to achieve a particular emotion or state of mind uh, to achieve uh, something that we want to kind of give to the audience to make them kind of sit in the uh, to be in the shoes of the character let's say so you send a sound recordist out into the wild to to capture specific sounds that, that don't necessarily have anything directly connected with, with the set. And those sounds are then brought back. And how do you then start to compose them? Because obviously now we're in a, we're in a digital age. How do you start to put those together as a soundtrack? I mean, often, often this process is process of uh, trial and error. Um, I it's some it's very hard to through words I guess to describe and often directors are not sure what what they want and, and it's a conversation between director and a sound designer what we want to achieve with a particular in a particular moment in, in the film um, and then it's a it's a you know slow process of building experimenting and and often through ex experience and trial and error you kind of slowly build some uh, um let's say a uh, symphony of different sounds uh, if if i can say something like that and and uh, um and then it's a conversation it's always a conversation between a director and, and a sound designer which i present something and director would say i like this i don't like this let's try something else and and in these reiterations often we um come with something that eventually works um that gives the the intention that is meant to have how did the conversations between you and Kathy go over the sound designs for Wildfire? Uh, actually, Wildfire was super interesting for, for working because many of these, uh, let's say, um, designed scenes, um, uh, the, the, the work has started way before the picture has been locked, like during the edit stages. This is something because I have a very close relationship with Kathy and with Matteo, the editor. Um, while they were in the edit, they would send me a scene that has been kind of roughly cut and, and then I would put some sounds there, you know, from kind of pure inspiration, very rough, very rough ideas. And then my sounds would influence the edit, picture edit, you know, I would get the next cut, I would change and it would be kind of back and forth bouncing like a particular scene like many many times until we kind of come to a position that we can say okay this is a right direction for the sound and it and one thing that i have noticed is that this is from my personal experience the best way of working because then the sound actually comes organically 
Um, and it's the process of how traditionally sound has been done is picture lock and then you start working on sound but then often sound is just there to kind of um, show what is happening on screen that is kind of the most simplistic way of doing sound um, but in the process of this kind of collaboration that sound is being done as the picture is being done as well uh, creates much more um, as I said organic sound sound that comes from the image and it kind of uh, um, gels really well and, and works works together as a one coherent audiovisual piece, I guess. You mentioned that in the past um, it would be picture lock and then sound. Has the thing that's changed that, is that to do with digital editing? Is it because actually the tools are now available for it to be much more of a conversation, whereas before, because it was physical, it had to be locked first? Is that why? Yeah, that's definitely one of the big reasons. Uh, the way we work today um, and the power, let's say, that we have on our computers now allows us to um, definitely start the process working. But I also think it's the change of mentality in the directors who are um, more and more realizing the potential that sound uh, has and are embracing it as much as they can to, to uh, make the films better, um, more immersive, more evocative. Um, and I think these two definitely uh, working together will, are bringing the, the, the change in the workflow. Can you remember the first film in which you were conscious of the sound design when you were watching it? Uh, I think one thing that definitely always uh, I, I remember is uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. I think it, West, it was the, the, that opening sequence. I always remember that the squeak of the metal. Um, what is it like a windmill or, or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, it was it's incredible that you know it was I think it was from the 60s that film and, and and like the strength of that opening scene in which the whole storytelling is told through sound of these different characters waiting and the tension that is being built and and the absence of sound as well as. Um, uh, yeah, so definitely, I, was, I would think. I mean, for for many years, after, like since I started working, I was trying to squeeze in that particular sound of the creaking metal <laughs> as much as I could, uh, like a little homage, I guess. To to, but definitely, that was the film that I realized. Oh my God, this is this is incredible. Have you ever done the thing which every sound editor is supposed to have done at some point of putting the Wilhelm, scre Wilhelm scream in somewhere? Yes, I mean that's a given. <laughs> is uh, it? You're not a sound editor if you haven't done that uh, at least once. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about it being a dialogue between um, between you and, and the director. Do you also get involved in a dialogue with the composer or with whoever it is that's doing the music? Because obviously on any soundtrack there are two things going on. There is the sound design and there is the music. And it seems to me that in the best cases that they're dancing to the same tune. Absolutely. I, I again, collaborating on this particular project with uh, with uh, Matt and Garrett was amazing. And, and in general, the, the approach that I like to have is to get in touch with the composer as early as possible, way before the pictures has even been shot, and to have a conversation to understand what is the, the, the language that the composer is thinking about. Again, this is a conversation between director and composer and sound um, designer or supervisor. Um, and to, to uh, kind of uh, ensure that um, the soundtrack as whole will work, that there's no places where sound is arguing with music, but actually we are creating space for another. And I think Wildfire is actually a very interesting example because... Uh, um, 
often we are not sure where the sound design stops and music starts and vice yeah. versa. And I think this is again coming from the past where where um music was always meant to be a huge orchestral score with kind of very uh, big intent when it comes in we know why it's there but you know uh, the language of, of uh, cinema has been changing and it's changed so so I think now this kind of close collaboration between composer and sound designer is, is essential um, to delivering the good soundtrack I had a conversation once with uh, the director of The Exorcist who explained that when they were doing the sound for that film and they got in a guy who'd worked on El Topo who would, to make sounds and um, uh, Gonzalo Guevara and Friedkin said, you know the bit when the girl's head turns round? Yeah. He said he got a leather, a leather wallet which had credit cards in it and he held it up to the microphone and he twisted the wallet and, and the sound of the wallet was the sound of the neck going round. And I remember hearing that and thinking the genius of it is that if you'd never said that, it would never have occurred to me. Can you think of some places in which you've come up with interesting ways of solving a sound problem, whether it's, you know, using a piece of squishy fruit for something else? Peter Jackson said that when he started making his movies, the first thing he discovered was that if you put squelchy yogurt between your hands, you can do almost anything. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the uh, part of the sound team that we call Foley artists are, are the people who are um, apart from covering yeah. just the official kind of obvious movements of the characters footsteps and stuff like that often um, do a lot of this kind of creating uh, new sounds and, and, and you know this is a perfect example that you gave um, that they would use something completely unrelated in any kind of way to what is on happening on screen but creating an illusion of that uh, and also during the edit, we, we often, often do that. I, a couple of years ago, I was working on a project um, uh, called Popeye. I was at, at um, Thailand, a uh, film from Thailand, and, and uh, it was of this huge elephant, and the director really wanted to have a character of this elephant. So, you know, um, and elephants actually don't make that many different sounds. It's very <laughs> kind of a... Uh, so creating expressive element, uh, elephant was quite a, quite a challenge, and I've used many other... <laughs> animals my own like my own voice pitching it down and and combining all the different elements for example or you know I mean from silly things like recording uh, uh, sound effects with your own voice and then processing and stuff like that I mean this is a um, I would say quite common practice for the for the sound designer always to have a microphone next to him to kind of just record very quickly some um, sound you know, with his mouth for example sound design is a slippery concept because um, I think Walter Murch coined the term in order to um, elevate the status of, of the sound post-production team um, to you know, com be comparable to production design, for example. My name's Guy Hake. I'm a senior sound design tutor at the National Film Television School. I've been teaching there for um, about uh, 20 years now. And... Um, Enjoy it very much. It's a great privilege to teach um, very, very committed, very talented students who really want to learn their subject. To some people, sound design is a very specialist niche area of sound post-production, and it's to do with designing particular sounds of creature effects or um, spaceship effects. Um, we at the NFTS tend to use the word sound design to encompass all aspects of sound post-production. And that would include 
dialogue editing and Foley recording and editing, for example, and, and use of atmospheres and spot effects. So um, what we teach is all of those subjects, how to edit sound, how to record it, how to use your judgment, how to appreciate what's going to support the story. Um, and also, it's not only an editing process, it's a mixing process. So sound design can encompass um, the dubbing mix um, stage um, or re-recording engineer, engineering stage. So um, as I say, at the, at the NFTS, we, we call our MA sound design, but we teach um, practically every aspect, every, every specialism within sound post-production. You, Malcolm, you mentioned Walter Murch, who is a name that I think most people will have heard of. Uh, however, unlike cinematographers or composers, beyond Walter Murch and Alan Splett, perhaps, most cinema goers would be hard-pressed to name you five great sound designers. Why is it that it has remained, at least as far as the public are concerned, a bit of a mystery? That's uh, a good question. Um it, it is not uncommon for people to assume that the sound that they hear in the cinema has been somehow recorded um, onto the camera directly. Um, and therefore, how hard can that be? It's just it's so, <laughs> it's so believable and so captivating. And it fits the, the, the image often so well that people really struggle with the concept that, that 95% of what one is hearing has been... Um, done in a studio afterwards and and each single footstep each single line of dialogue has been um, weighed up and judged and mixed very carefully so it, it it's 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 hard to understand exactly what it is um it's invisible um but uh, and it's also i think sound design is something that starts um often at the script stage but the, the editor the picture editor so-called really does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of sound design. They're, they're making decisions when they cut, um, when they assemble a film, they're, they're assembling the production sound, of course, as well as the images. And so they're already beginning to create a language um, for the film, a kind of rhythm, um, uh, uh, you know, how much dialogue, how much space, how dynamic the film is going to be. So it starts really with... with um, in, in, in post-production, it starts with the editor and then various specialists take it through to the final mix. Um, I, I, I wish there were more famous sound designers, um, but um, I think it kind of suits. I mean, most sound designers I know, Mark, are quite self-effacing and they just like to, to squirrel away in their studios um, and, and do fantastic work. That's pretty much unheralded. But um Nicholas Becker, for example, won the Oscar for yes. Sound of Metal. He's a wonderful sound designer, brilliant Foley artist. Um, and he, he's, I kind of think of him as a bit of a rock and roll sound designer. So I think people, <laughs> people yeah. like Nicholas will, will no doubt with time raise the profile of, of sound design as, as a specialism, I think, I hope. I remember once talking to somebody about um, something that happened to them, fairly traumatic. 
And the phrase that they used was, they said, I can hear the blood rushing in my own ears. And it's, you know, people know what that means when you can hear the sound inside your own head. And it seems to me that in a way, what what sound design is best is trying to do is that. It's to imagine the sound inside of the film's head. Is that too airy-fairy or is that a fair assessment of what you're trying to do? Um, I think it is a very fair assessment. I mean, there, there, are, there are kind of obvious examples of that kind of internal, sub, highly subjective sound. For example, in Dallas Buyers Club, a, f- a fantastic film, brilliant soundtrack in which filmmakers use a high-pitched ringing tone to, to indicate, um, as a kind of motif to indicate Matthew McConaughey's illness um, and him kind of receding into his, own, in, into his own head and ultimately collapsing on the floor. Um, but sound does deal with the interior very well in a way that the, the image can present, that, that the cinematography can present um, you know, the look, the space, colour, texture, very, very, very important things. And at the same time, the soundtrack can, the, when I say soundtrack, I, I mean the entire sound yeah. and, and score. The soundtrack can be doing something else, which is suggesting something under the skin and, and you know, disturbed, um, dissonant somehow, kind of at odds with um, appearance. One of the things that always struck me as really interesting after the, the kind of the dogma revolution that happened and people started you know, making films that looked like they were you know, homemade, no tripods, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the interesting thing about all those films is that the sound is clear and great. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of filmmakers who said people always get it the wrong way around. They think that if the film looks great, you'll get away with it. This it's completely the other way around. If a film sounds great, it can look like toast and it'll still be like a cinema experience. But if it looks great and it sounds like toast, it's all over. Indeed. Um, it's something that our students have to learn very quickly. Um, don't skimp on, on, on preparation for sound recording. Um, documentary students that go out and, you know, and shoot um, and very often in the, in the early, in the early attempts, forget about sound and have a, a, a microphone on top of the camera and the dialogue is awful or the radio mic has fallen off and it's dangling around someone's shoes. So you're absolutely right. You can, you can get away with um, pretty do- dodgy images. It, and I think it, it is, and if the sound is good, we will, we will be, um, our attention will be held, we'll understand and we'll feel close to the protagonist. Typically, if we can, if we can hear them and there's a, there's a kind of a, a warmth uh, and a proximity of, of a sonic nature, then we will follow that character and we will feel close to them and we will empathize. That's a very important part of, of sound design, I think, is, is establishing um, an empathy with a protagonist. Do you think it's significant that Orson Welles, who you know, is regarded by many as you know, the greatest filmmaker of all time, or at least having made the greatest film of all time, came out of a radio background, obviously theatre, but his, he was in radio before he was in cinema. Do you think that's a significant thing? Um, he's a very interesting example, I think, of, of someone talking about Citizen Kane. One is struck by the fact that there are, there are many scenes in which people talk where there's a locked off wide shot and the performers are allowed to 
um, perform and the, the dialogue overlaps and and it, there's a, a high degree of sort of naturalistic performances, I think, to my ear. Um, whereas, and there are many sort of, sort of tour de force sequences of, with, with you know, movement, you know, camera moves, etc., um, and deep focus. So, yes, I, Orson Welles understands um, the importance of of allowing the performers to perform. But there, there's, there's a really interesting sequence for me. Um, you'll remember the I think I think he describes it as the I want to go on a picnic that that scene where they, of course, for, 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 for Citizen Kane, a picnic is a trip to the Caribbean or something with about <laughs> 800 <laughs> attendants. But you remember that scene where, where it starts off with this very mournful jazz number and, and um, there's a party, there's a, I don't know, a pig roast going on. And, and meanwhile, um, Kane and his, and his, his wife are in this tent and he's very sullen and very, um, very argumentative. It's very near the end of their relationship. And the party in the background is quite kind of raucous. And then it slowly changes as he stands up and looms over his wife. The, the, the entire atmosphere of the film just reduces to one woman screaming in the background. And it's extraordinary because it, it's, one doesn't really know whether it's really happening, but it, but it's, it's, it's so affecting and it's so symbolically powerful. And you just look at this, this poor woman and, 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 and feel like this, that is your soul screaming. Um, so it's, it's a, I think it's the, the only moment in that film that I can remember that, that, that the sound design is so um, intentionally uh, odd, if you like, and not non-naturalistic. You want me to love you? Sure. I'm Charles Foster Kane. Whatever you want, just name it and it's yours. But you gotta love me. Don't tell me you're sorry. I'm not sorry. I remember being very impressed by the sound design of, of uh, Lady Macbeth. And again, to say I was impressed by the sound design sounds like I'm criticising it because it means I noticed it. But... I remember when they were in the house, everything felt like wood. And when they were out of the house, everything felt like the wild moor. And, but not through it was windy outside and it was creaky inside. It was much more subtle than that. And I remember thinking that one of the things that made that film was that I thought I was in those places as they moved between the interior and the exterior because the sound was telling me, not because of the visuals. Um, how much is what you're teaching the students to do, teaching them to represent the space that the thing is happening in? Space is really important um, in a kind of realistic sense. So if you're in a church or if you're in a, in a, um, you know, a softly furnished sitting room, the sound typically needs to reflect those differences in a very obvious way. Um, I think more importantly than than being authentic about space i think that the key thing is to understand um whether the protagonist is comfortable in that space so in other words what what are the forces of antagonism 
um, uh, coming to bear on the protagonist. Do they feel comfortable in this person's sitting room or in, in this church or in this wood or not? So it's really, for me, what we explore a lot, what we, what we critique is, is a kind of relationship between um, a, the protagonist and their environment. So um, when, I don't know, take an example, it's like Robin Hood's in the forest. His, the, the forest is, is not antagonistic. Um, mm. But when, when you hear the sound of, you know, horses and clanking armor, that is antagonistic to, to Robin. So you would, you would, you would bring that to bear in your, in your mix and how you, how sharp, how ugly, how dissonant those sounds are. So it's, it's a relational thing. Authenticity is really important. If you speak to Paul uh, Davis, for example, about, you know, playing the wrong bird in the wrong season <laughs> or the wrong continent, um, you know, you do get letters. Um, but <laughs> do I, you? Well, I, I, I haven't, but I think people do. Um, uh, there's, I, I think there's those frogs that were recorded near California kind of appear in every single continent, and you know, um, <laughs> but they only exist in like one one marsh, I think. But the the um, so it it's about relationships where you're using things that have felt like dissonance, weight, jeopardy, loud, heavy, rumbly sounds typically make us feel uneasy in, a, in an evolutionary sense. Um, if we didn't run away from loud, rumbly, low frequency sounds, we would have died. So we can use <laughs> those quite subtly to indicate um, fear. We can actually move an audience. You can kind of change yeah. the heart rate by having rumbles. But, but if you start to overuse them, they, they very quickly run out of their, their effects and they're very difficult to handle. So um, you're using these sounds almost subliminally um, and often unnaturalistically. So you, yeah. you, can, you can combine naturalistic sounds with these, these non-naturalistic sounds that are designed, mixed in very carefully and subtly, and often change throughout a sequence to indicate maybe a, a journey that the protagonist is, is going through from feeling reasonably at ease at the beginning of the scene to feeling distinctly ill at ease by the end. So that could be the addition or the subtraction of something throughout the scene. Guy, that's great. Let me ask you as a final question. If somebody was thinking that they might want to go into sound design, what are the key, what are the key traits that you need to be a sound designer? Um, I think you have to be patient and you have to be diligent. It's a very, um, it's a pernickety world of sound design. You have to, um, you know, all your editing has to be precise. So you have to be willing to um, be quite fanatical about your work. But a love of film, a love of sound, a love of story is much more important than that. Um, engaging your audience in something that is emotional and often life-changing is a wonderful opportunity for any individual. And I think that a sound designer um, has all the tools um, you know, at their disposal um, to really affect people's emotion, um, make them make them terrified, make them cry, um, and and sort of help them understand their life and themselves.
um, which is a very bold claim, but I, I, I stick by it. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed this Kermode on Film episode on sound design. My thanks to my guests Nina Hartstone, Nicola Medic and Guy Hake. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, check out our Patreon page, which has got loads of video extras. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.